Welcome to Founders Unfiltered by a junior VC. We are your hosts, Mazin and Aviral. What do you look for in an entrepreneur? How do you know that they are the right people to solve the problem? Uh, I'd have to spend another 15 years in venture to actually give a very definitive answer. But, you know, over the last you know couple of years, a few things really stand out for me. And I've seen that in entrepreneurs who succeed. It, you can always say post-talk and not before. I think two things are super critical and super important. One is that they should have a very clear why. Uh, many entrepreneurs might say that I'm doing this because I want to get an exit. And for me, that really is a no-no for the reason being that if you're just doing it for financial incentives, things will get so bad sometimes that you'll want to give up. And if that's the only thing that's driving you, then you will probably will uh, will give up. I think the second thing, which is more a personality type, intellectual honesty, because when a founder is starting out and they're very early on in their journey, they don't know anything and what will work, right? Obviously, they have a lot of experience. Hopefully, if they've worked in a company or in general, whenever they're starting, but they don't know specifically about their particular problem that they're solving as a company or particular pro- product that they're building, right? If you don't know that and if you don't have an answer that is very clear in terms of what to build, you have to figure it out. The founders who don't have intellectual honesty, which means that they are not willing to say that they don't understand something and they're not willing to improve themselves intellectually by being intellectually honest, which means that do I understand this clearly and if I don't, will I ask someone about it? they usually end up not doing well. While the ones who who end up doing really well, they're very intellectually honest. They're like, hey, I don't understand this. I need to figure it out. I need to ask someone. And, you know, they're learning machines. In this episode, we speak to Shreyat, the co-founder of FinShots, about how they built their company. Shreyat met his co-founders in business school. But he was not like the typical entrepreneur that Aviral described. When they started FinShots, they didn't have a clear why. But they were definitely intellectually honest. Shreya just didn't see himself fitting into the corporate world. And he was looking for an escape. And that's how he got together with, with Pavan and Bhanu, his two co-founders. And not knowing what they were going to do, they started a company. They found that finance is often inaccessible and textbooks are not the best way to learn. As they learned about finance themselves, they were able to simplify it for others. Shreya actually says that perhaps the fact that they knew nothing about finance was why they could actually pull this off. Today, FinShots delivers one three-minute read per day to over 100,000 subscribers talking about India's most important financial developments. Please enjoy our conversation with Shreya about his incredible entrepreneurial journey. You guys started a company called Finception, actually, that, that I recall because I spoke to you guys a couple of years ago as well. How did that come about? You just started straight out of B-School. All of you went to IMA just a year after me. What really inspired you to start this straight out of college? And if you can walk us through a little bit of your journey up to then. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny story that actually, where do I start? Yeah, I mean, you know, walking into B-School, I mean, for me was probably the most awe-inspiring journey that, that I could have had. I had a degree in engineering. I was not a good engineer. I had a degree in computer science, wasn't a good coder. So 
when I had a chance to sort of make it into IIM, I mean, to be honest with you, I was blown away by the kind of, you know, kind of people that I was talking to, interacting with. And it was really an experience that I think I probably cherish for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I really did understand that when you're in a B school, like, you know, I'm Ahmedabad, I, I think the competition sort of scares you a bit. I think, I think it makes you go inside your shell and you, you sort of don't want to do anything. I'm sure many people who've, who've gone to IIM, you know, probably from not, you know, the finest institutions in the country can sort of relate to it. But luckily for me, I had the chance of meeting Banu, I think, during the first course. I think it was a financial reporting and analysis, right? It was accounting. Um, I sucked at accounting. It was, it was so bad, right? So I... You know, luckily for me, I met Banu then. And I think he was the first guy to sort of, you know, help me through the whole equation of saying, you know, it's okay, right? It's fine if you're not at the top of your class. It's, you know, it's just about making through this whole journey. And so that's how I met Banu, who's also one of the co-founders at FinShots. And uh, Pavan, another co-founder, happened to be my classmate. So I didn't know Pavan intimately during the first year, but he was my classmate. And we did have, you know, we, we used to talk occasionally we weren't the best of friends but but yeah that's how i met pavan and uh, banu's brother lokesh joined us much later but but yeah that's that's sort of how the team got together and you're right um we weren't fin shots actually we were finception you know what i I think there is this perception about entrepreneurs right i think most people think entrepreneurs are the kind of people that you know they want to push new boundaries they want to expand their horizons they want to add value to the ecosystem they want to change the world fundamentally I don't think I ever felt any of that, to be honest with you. I think for me, especially, you know, in the second year, I kind of was getting the sense that I did not have a fair chance of making it in the corporate domain. I mean, truth be told, I, I didn't think I'd get a decent job. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the biggest drivers for me to say, well, I should try and do something. It was that simple. I mean, fundamentally, I was looking for an escape. And luckily for me, it was at the same time that Pawan also was looking for an escape. He was probably going through some, you know, personal turmoil. I think there was, there was some problems back at his place and he wanted to do something, right? So Pawan had been a trader for quite a while. So he was, he was very active, you know, in, in trading stocks, uh, derivatives, futures. So he was making some money, not, not ridiculous kinds of money, but, but he was making some money. So he wanted to see what he could sort of do in the finance, you know, in the stock market ecosystem. I think somewhere, you know, during the second year, I sort of realized that, that, yeah, I, I needed an escape. And when Pavan said, you know, we need a CTO, right? Would you be willing to be the CTO for the organization? I mean, he said, you know, he had a startup idea in mind. He, he wanted to do something. And truth be told, I, I wasn't, like I said, I, I didn't know how to code, man. Like I, I, I couldn't code to save my life, right? But because I was so desperately looking for an escape, I said, yes. I, t- I told him I'd do anything, you know, anything that's possible if it meant that I didn't have to sort of sit through the placement process. And so me and Pawan sort of went to the, you know, the head that was leading the CII initiative, which incubates startups at IAM and, you know, other places as well. And we made the pitch to say, well, you know, we want to do something in the stock market. And I just went along, not knowing absolutely, without having any idea about what I was going to do. And... And I obviously, you know, considering I knew how unskilled I was in any of these domains, I didn't know how to code. I had straight C's in microeconomics, macroeconomics, financial reporting and analysis, costing and control systems, any finance and economic subject, I had a straight C. 
right? I mean, that, that's, that's how bad I was when it came to finance. So I needed, I think at that point, we realized we needed somebody who had some authority in finance. And we sort of brainwashed Banu into sort of, you know, you know, joining us, I suppose. I mean, I mean, that's basically how we came together. And we decided we were going to do something in the stock market ecosystem, not knowing anything about what we were going to do. And we called it Finception. We said, okay, we're going to start and simplify stock markets because that's what we need. We have no idea about what stock market is. So let's start with that. So that's how sort of, you know, the journey culminated for us. And yeah, I mean, I don't think we ever look back from there. That's awesome. And it basically indicates that there's inaccessibility to finance for a lot of people. It's just not stock markets, but finance in general. Why do you think that is so? And how do you take the approach to actually explain all these things in a simple and lucid manner? I think part of it has to do with, with our backgrounds as well. I mean, like I told you, I had no experience with finance. Uh, first year, I bombed in every finance course, every economics course, every probability and statistics course. I was so petrified about finance that second year, I think I only took liberal arts courses. I mean, I took courses on Bhagavad Gita. I took exploring roles and identities, participated in theater. And, you know, it's funny because Banu actually wanted to take a couple of finance courses. He said, you know, he, he was interested. He was getting good grades. But again, I brainwashed him into sort of not taking any, any of these courses. And, and we were essentially at, at sort of, you know, at ground zero when it came to, you know, finance in general. So when you're at that position, I think the only thing that you can do is sort of move away from the textbooks altogether because textbooks have a very specific goal in mind, right? They want to impart as much knowledge as possible in the shortest span of time. So they built that way. They want to be perfect about everything. But we just wanted like, you know, bare minimum access to understand what was happening in the ecosystem. So right after we started Inception, we made sure that we took up books that sort of dumbed down finance, right? Um, Any book that we sort of read through, we made sure that, you know, this book was accessible to us. And because our introduction into the markets began with such an easy, accessible resource, we've been able to sort of get to a point where we could impart the same kind of wisdom, knowledge or whatever you could call it, right, to our audience as well. So effectively, the reason why we were sort of able to build this value proposition is because we were incompetent to begin with, right, because we had to go through the process of understanding what finance and stock markets stood for, that it actually turned out to be an advantage for us because we could simplify it better than anybody else. And I suppose that's the bottom line because we were such dummies when it came to finance, we actually, you know, were able to simplify it for others who might think they're dummies as well. So let's dive into our topic, the early days of building a startup. You spoke a bit about what makes an entrepreneur uh, and, and you guys kind of built a team without that specific expertise in finance. So can you walk me through how you adapted to your, to your new roles? How did you kind of build that knowledge base? How did you Yeah, Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question, right? Because you know how I look at entrepreneurship? I think I look at it, it, it's like a marriage you never wanted in the first place, right? I mean, you're married to it because, you know, there's no other choice. You're sort of, you know, led to it. You you have no other recourse. So, So you end up marrying the person. But once you do it, right, you have to sort of follow through with it, right? Through sickness and in health till death do us apart. I mean, it, it almost felt like that. We were looking for an escape. That's it. I mean, we were trying to do something because we had nothing else to do. But once you commit to it, right, I think there's an overwhelming burden on you. I, I, think, I think burden is the right word because, because if it weren't a burden, I don't think there'd be any reason for us to 
come out of our own shells. And that's how we felt at the time, because every meeting that we went to every sort of, you know, person that we met in the industry kept telling us the same thing. What's your expertise? Right? I mean, who are you? And every time it's sort of, you know, we had this conversation, I think it hurt us. I think, I think we took it as a sort of a, you know, as a personal insult because, because we were being told that we were nobodies in this ecosystem. Right. So that sort of spurred on the inner fire, I guess. And, and at some point in time, we realized, you know what, it doesn't matter if you weren't good at it, you know, back, back during your MBA days, it's, it's time to sort of buck up. So the way we distributed, you know, sort of our roles and responsibilities was very organic. I remember, you know, in the early days that, you know, although Banu and Pavan could sort of understand finance and, you know, perhaps read through accounting statements better than me, I was the only one who sort of could write, right? And we had decided at some point in time that we're going to simplify stock markets through words, through articles. And, and the only way for me to sort of, you know, bridge this divide between research from Banu and Pavan and, you know, my writing was to actually be the conduit, right? I had to understand what was happening in the background. So it was very organic in that sense, in that we were pushed to a wall and said, well, you know, there's, there's nowhere else for you to go. What do you do now? Right? And then you start picking up books. I remember the summer of 2018, it was, it was probably the worst summer because, you know, we were, I think it was just the three of us in campus. Everybody had left, you know, everybody's obviously, you know, once you graduate, you move out of you know, college and there's nobody there. It was the worst time because there's not a lot of people around you, but it does put you in a very sort of a very soothing spot. And so all you have is time and space. So we took as many books as possible. We read everything cover to cover. I remember that was probably the most productive summer, despite it being a very horrible, horrible time to actually be spending your time alone. And yeah, it was just a matter of, you know, us coming together very organically and deciding that, yeah, we've been pushed to the brink. So what do we do now? Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how it sort of, you know, went from there. A lot of the best products and startups in the world have come out of someone building something that they need that they saw. Right. Amazing to hear. And, and so can you talk a bit more about the initial days of building Finception? I believe right. that you met some shady individuals and as you learned about the stock market, there were yeah. kind of some other areas that you explored. So we'd love to learn, know a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think the early days of building conception was probably, you know, it's, it's very treacherous. I mean, the funny thing is people, people sort of, you know, even now we get this look that we're very privileged folks, right? I mean, we are from IAM, you know, we, we probably have you know, many doors open and it's true to a certain extent, right? Doors do open, you know, perhaps, you know, more easily, right? But you have to remember, right, you know, coming out of college, each of us had a loan burden of probably 20 lakhs. Um, so, so we were sort of being very reckless in our pursuit because we had a lot of debt on our hands and sort of, you know, didn't know what to do about it. So, so we went about this in a very haphazard fashion because we knew we needed this like, like the most. So in our pursuit, I think, I think we met people that we otherwise would never have met. Right? Because we were so desperate to seek validation from the ecosystem, we met. And I remember one of our first meetings was with this gentleman who, who was running, I think, a research firm in Ahmedabad. And he sort of sat us down and he sort of took us through the whole, to the whole quagmire of, you know, making your way through the stock markets. And he said, you know, the number that you look on your screen when you trade, it's probably been designed by a couple of people who already know what's going to happen to the stock price, right? They're acting in collusion. And he said how he was acting in collusion. He, he sort of showed us that whatever we, you know, believe outside of the ecosystem, how stock market is supposed to be this, you know, non-corrupt engine that, you know, that effectively can take any retail investor to the top. 
I think that sort of broke down completely. And the more we sort of interacted with these shady people, the more we realized that we needed to talk about stocks in a very uh, transparent way so that other people understand that it's not very easy to master the stock market. Right? And I think in the early days, one of our biggest struggle was getting an audience. We'd write, you know, pages and pages of stuff, but hardly, I think 20, 30 people would read us. I mean, in the early days, at least it was, it was demoralizing at, at first, right? Because you're meeting all these people, you're going through all of this, you know, this nonsense, you're hearing, you're hearing all of this stuff and you're trying to make it more transparent to people. You're telling them how screwed up the system is. And yet there's very few people who are sort of listening to you. And I think in the early days, it was, it was sort of very demoralizing at best. I remember the first story that we published, I think we got like, I think 600 reads. And that was the most we'd ever gotten. And by then, I think we'd already written close to, I think, 20, 20, 30,000 words. Right? We'd written on IPOs and stuff like that. And like I said, maybe 200, 300 people were reading us. So when 600 people read us on the first day, we sort of jumped up and said, that's, that's probably the greatest number that, that we could do, right? Um, so all I remember is, you know, 2018 and early 2019 was just, you know, it's just, yeah, it was very demoralizing. But like I said, once you're married to the startup, you, you sort of fight through no matter what happens. Um, so yes, that's, that's all I remember from those days. That's amazing. And can you tell us a bit more about how you dealt with these failures and then what was the turning point for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because late 2018, early 2019, we still kept writing our stories, but I think early 2019 sort of, you know, I think our fortunes turned a slight bit, I'd say. So we had these WhatsApp groups. So finally we had figured out that perhaps our distribution, you know, our distribution strategy was all over the place. So we started focusing exclusively on WhatsApp and Twitter. Right? So we said, okay, we're going to post some stuff on Twitter. We're going to, we're going to try and build an audience there. And we're going to try and build an audience on WhatsApp as well. Um, and, and we did that for a while, right? So we were getting some traction. We were getting some users, but it was still not enough to justify all of the effort that we were sort of pouring into the startup. I remember when we originally met, I think we, we spoke to Aviral. Aviral addressed some of our stuff. The only problem was, you know, we had, I think, close to 8,000 subscribers, but it really wasn't enough to justify the kind of resources that we were pouring into this sort of, you know, this, this endeavor. And it got to a point where we had to reevaluate what we were doing because we were on a stipend of 40,000 a month. We had a loan burden of, I think, 20 lakhs. Um, our moratorium period had just ended and we had to start making repayments. I think EMIs probably easily cost us, you know, 16, 18,000, if I'm not wrong. Um, so how do you live with the stipend of 40,000 and try and build a startup, right? We had to dip into our savings. I had none. Abhanu had some. Pavan, you know, had some as well. So all I remember at, at that time, I think we, we just had to figure out a way how to keep moving. So Lokesh, you know, Banu's brother had joined us by then. And, and luckily for us, he offered us an exit plan. He said, you know what, I'm going to build trading strategies. And what we're going to do is we're going to manage money for others. And hopefully we'll, be, we'll have enough money to sort of keep this boat afloat. This was, you know, February, March. And by then, you know, we, was, we, we were sort of really thinking about pivoting and doing something else. We really wanted to keep Inception alive because to get, you know, to go from 200 readers to, to 2000 readers and from 2000 to like, you know, 8,000 readers. I mean, it was this very tiny number, but the amount of effort that we had to put together, all four of us just sitting there and, you know, our amazing interns we had back in the day, uh, we'd stay up till about four o'clock, just writing, just researching, pouring through documents, hundreds and thousands of pages of documents, trying to make the best story possible. 
right? And all of those, you know, all of those efforts sort of culminated into Finception. Unfortunately, Finception was going nowhere. So we were desperately trying to keep Finception alive and hopefully try and make enough money to keep ourselves alive. And at that point, we had like sort of a turning point. I suppose that's what completely changed everything for us. Jet Airways had just sort of, I think they, they hadn't filed for bankruptcy, but I think they shut down operations. This was probably April, April 2019. You know, we wanted to write a story about Jet Airways because this was a stock that we'd already written about. And so one of our interns, whose name is Urvashi, so Urvashi pointed out to me that, well, you know what we should do? We should sort of do an infographic on how Jet Airways lost its market share over the years, right? From 1990s to 2000s and, you know, throughout 2010 and so on. And it seemed cool, but it didn't seem like something that could sort of, you know, completely blow, blow up. So I think at the time there was all this rage from, you know, those bar chart videos. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see them, but it's those bar charts that sort of keep moving up and down and they show you some sort of, I think, progress in terms of, you know, some metric, right? Total number of market share or total number of mobile units sold. And that was all the rage back in April. And Suddenly we had this thought of, you know, trying to put all of this idea into a bar chart video. It was a bar chart race. That's what it was called. And so we made that video hoping that it'd get us, you know, from 8,000 to 10,000 subscribers or whatever. Right. I mean, I think we had about 9,000 subscribers back then, but as soon as we launched the video, I think, you know, it, it went berserk. Right. I remember looking at our Twitter that first day and the retweet numbers were, it was sort of exponential. Paytm's founder Vijay Shekhar Sharma retweeted it. We were seeing popular journalists retweet it. We were seeing all kinds of people retweeted and these numbers we'd never seen before. Our website was suddenly blowing up, right? People were coming to our website and they were like, whoa, what is Finception, right? Who, who's this? Who's, who's Finception? And in the span of maybe one week, Chance and Lady Fortuna sort of changed our whole, you know, outlook about, you know, how the startup is supposed to pan out. I think everything sort of turned in just a matter of one week. We got interest from all sorts of people, but I think the most important thing for us was Karthik Rangappa, uh, a gentleman. I mean, he's he currently heads the varsity division for Zeroda. Uh, so basically it's an education initiative where they teach people how to trade and stuff like that. So he saw this video, he went through our website and he put us in touch with Nitin Kamath, who's the founder of Zeroda, right? That was the turning point after one and a half years of pain and suffering and going through this demoralizing process of trying your best to build competencies and not seeing those competencies, you know, turn into any fruitful outcomes. Finally, we had our break, right? We had a meeting with Nitin Kamath and I think I remember just being happy for the next two weeks meeting Nitin Kamath. So that was probably our turning point. I mean, if, if I had to sort of summarize it. That's amazing. It's it's so true, especially with early stage startups. It's it's often a combination yeah. of being there and just happening to be in the right place at the right time at times. But you guys were persistent and you kind of kept working at it. But if you could now maybe yeah. talk us through the pivot from Finception to right. FinShots and how did you start thinking about FinShots and explain how it evolved? Yeah. So, so with Finception, I think our goal was to sort of simplify stock markets, right? So what we do is we'd sort of go through all these, these dense research reports and condense them into short 10, 12 minute reads. Now bear in mind, these were still 10, 12 minute reads on a very niche topic, the stock markets, right? Now, how many people, how many people would you, would you think would actually go through this stuff? who's probably never heard about markets because our objective 
was to grow the capital market ecosystem. We thought we could actually get more people to invest and trade and sort of, you know, uh, basically we hope to educate the masses about the merits and perils of investing, right? So that was the objective. But unfortunately, the approach that we took with Finception perhaps wasn't the most fruitful approach at least, right? Because anybody who's coming to Finception was not your average another male guy who's probably never heard of stock markets. More often than not, our readers turned out to be seasoned veterans. I mean, the people that were following us on Twitter were, you know, seasoned veterans. Some of them had 20, 25 years of experience just trading in the markets and they were reading us because they found value. So I think somewhere along the line, we felt that the people that were reading our stuff were not necessarily the newbies that we really wanted to target. So at some point in time, you know, we still wanted to do the stuff that we were doing with stocks and stock markets and stuff like that. But I think at some point we realized that we needed a different strategy instead of writing 12 minute articles every single week, once a week, by the way, was probably not going to get us the audience and the kind of people that we wanted to attract. Right. So, so we decided that we are going to make some changes. And one of the changes was to expand our horizons, right? Not just talk about stocks, but talk about finance policy that has to do with finance, economics, right? Anything that has to do with business and business related domains, we were very comfortable of talking about it. And we also made another subtle change in saying that, you know what, 12 minute reads is probably still too much in an age where everybody wants to consume content on the go. Spending 12 minutes is still probably a novelty. And so we sort of reduced the size. We said, okay, this is going to be a three minute newsletter and we're going to do it every single day so that we build an audience that keeps coming back to us again and again and again. So we wanted to do all of this. And fortunately for us, Nitin Kamath, again, you know, the founder of Seroda invested in us by then. He was very willing to support us, right? I mean, offer us, you know, Zerodha's audience as well initially. And we had sort of the perfect launch pad to launch FinShot. So fundamentally, this was us actually going back to the problem that we wanted to solve. Because after one year of sort of, you know, uh, tweaking around with the content, we realized that we weren't getting the kind of people that we wanted. And so we had to fundamentally shift to FinShots because that was more appealing to the kind of people that we really wanted to target. And right now what we're seeing is it play out in, well, real time. I mean, most of the people that read us are not people who are ardent followers of stock markets, but instead people who otherwise would never have read about finance or policy or economics, but are now doing it because it's so accessible to them. So the pivot was largely a function of finally figuring out that our initial product that we so carefully built over the past one year. Yeah, it wasn't working. I mean, that's about it. Cool. Um, that was, it was a little gut wrenching to hear. Um, you know, the tough journey, but I think what ends well is well. And would love to understand a little bit on what advice you would have for other first time founders, given your journey in the beginning was a little difficult, but I think yeah. now things are shaping up quite well. Yeah. Uh, what would that piece of advice be for first time founders? I suppose the fundamental advice would be, you know, how we think about entrepreneurs are these sort of the daring adventure folks who are probably, you know, pushing new boundaries, as I earlier mentioned. If, if you had told me two years back that we'd be doing this with FinShots and, you know, the kind of love that we've gotten over the past few months would actually materialize, I'd have laughed at you. I mean, I, I truly would, because I think starting, you know, 2018, 20, you know, early 2017, when we were, you know, sort of figuring out what to do with the startup, we were totally reckless. 
I mean, we wanted to be a stockbroker in the, you know, in the early days. And then we said, oh, we're going to simplify stock markets. Okay, we don't know how to simplify stock markets. So, so we'll start learning about it. I think over the past one year, we've had sort of, you know, we've matured as well. We've realized how to draw the boundary, you know, for ourselves, right? I mean, when are we being reckless? When are we, when are we doing things that perhaps is not prudent at all? So my only advice to first-time entrepreneurs, and I think Banu Pawan and Lokesh would agree as well, is that I don't think people should be as reckless as they are because, because it can be detrimental. I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, fortunately for us, because we were working at CIE, I think I had a chance to look at other entrepreneurs as well. One of my very good friends who runs a very small startup called IndieFoot. Um, it's a startup that helps, you know, you know, young kids to sort of, you know, learn football and, you know, it's all football oriented. It was a great idea. And this was a very, very passionate guy. And I love him for his passion. Right. But I had a chance, you know, I mean, you think our struggle was bad. I mean, you should look at that guy. Right. I mean, it was horrific some days because he didn't even have a co-founder. Right. I mean, he didn't have anybody to talk to. So he would come to us, he would discuss. And I think the fundamental takeaway from all of this, you know, this, this whole two years has been that you're going to pay for recklessness some way or the other. And sometimes when you do pay for it, it's not going to turn out well for you. It's going to be ugly. So I think the only advice would be to sort of, Tell yourself that you're being brave. Bravery is, you know, it's commendable. Please don't be right. I think that's the only lesson that I'd want to sort of, you know, tell upcoming entrepreneurs. Yeah. Awesome. And our closing question that we ask every founder we speak to, right. what is some unfiltered feedback that you have received that really helped you in your journey or in your life? I think I've received a lot of feedback. Yeah, but, but I think the only feedback that we kept receiving in the early days sort of shaped our journey because they kept telling us how horribly unprepared we were to sort of take on this journey. We didn't know a lot about stocks. We didn't know a lot about financial markets. We didn't know a lot about economics. And we still wanted to build a startup that's centered on these three things. I mean, that's, that's stupidity, if you ask me, I mean, looking back, right? So they called out our stupidity. It's just that instead of holding up and saying, well, we'll do something else, we actually built on our competencies. So I think the only unfiltered feedback that we sort of received in the early days that helped us sort of grow the startup to where it is right now has been, you have no idea what you're doing. And that's the only feedback that, that, that we kept getting. And I think that's, that's perhaps been the only thing that, that propelled us to where we are today. So, so yeah, probably the best feedback we see. And now, a quick summary of what we discussed with Shreth, the co-founder of FinShorts. Shreth never planned to become an entrepreneur. He met his co-founders in business school. And the three of them were looking for an escape from the corporate world. They started a company with a vague idea and a goal to make finance more accessible. They went out and spoke to people trying to learn more about the financial markets and were surprised at what they found. The world of finance seems shadier and more broken than they imagined. So they started to write about it. They were trying to tell everyone how screwed up the system is, but no one was listening. It was demoralizing at times, but they kept at it, gradually building their audience. They got to a few hundred readers for each story and built a subscriber base of a few thousand. But it still wasn't enough. Just as they were running out of cash, the team had a turning point. Jet Airways had gone bankrupt. The team decided to make a video showing how it happened, and it went viral. In the span of one week, everything changed. They ended up meeting the founder of the digital stock brokerage firm, Zerodha. 
They got access to a much larger audience and the funding they needed to keep going. Today, Finn Shorts delivers one three-minute read per day to over 100,000 subscribers talking about India's most important financial developments. Thank you so much for tuning in to Founders Unfiltered. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening? Thank you.